you would go ahead, good. If you would go ahead and turn to Lamentations uh, 3, 17, 26. I'll take Santa Claus off real quick. The um, some important context for this verse is, or verses that we before we get into it. Not that we're all Lamentations experts, I'm sure, but as you're going through the reading on this, uh, there's about two chapters before this where there's the author is absolutely uh, you know lamenting, grieving, complaining, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it reads more of despair more so than than just normal run-of-the-mill complaining. But uh, I'm sure that there's some context to this, and I'm I don't um, 2020. Uh, there's been plenty of this is the worst year ever, and uh, this is the, everything's terrible. And, and somewhere there is. I think the people from 500 BC would have something to say uh, about that um, context-wise. So let's go ahead and start reading. Uh, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, and they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good for those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Jacob. Good morning, family. Uh, why don't we pray and we will get right down to work. Father, we, we thank you for bringing us here this morning and we thank you for allowing us to see just very real and honest and raw expressions from the Bible. I pray that as we read that passage and consider it and consider others this morning that you will, uh, by your grace and through your spirit, prepare our hearts to be humble uh, to receive your word, but also to be honest, that we, we feel uh, very similarly to many of the expressions that we will hear this morning. And in, in that honesty, Father, I pray that you'd give our hearts the courage to turn from our misplaced hope, or maybe to reach out from our hopelessness and despair to find our hope in Jesus and Jesus alone this morning. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So today is the second Sunday of Advent, and Advent is about promises fulfilled. Advent is about promises fulfilled, specifically promise, promises fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus, but Advent is about far more than just promises fulfilled. Advent is about unfolding promises being fulfilled in Jesus, through which, as Tolkien is well known to have said, everything sad will come untrue. So Advent is about hope. Today we begin a four-week journey that will carry us throughout the Advent season, and our journey will be focused on exploring what the Bible has to say about hope. This morning we'll do a flyover of hope. We're going to fly over hope at about 40,000 feet, working to gain a biblical view. And then each following week we'll get up close and personal with one of four characters involved in the advent of the Christ to see how hope in God is expressed in the everyday stuff of messy life. So we'll see young Mary, a pregnant teenager who was not married yet. We'll see old man Zechariah and old man Simeon and then a very old woman uh, by the name of Anna. And we will consider this theme of hope as we see it playing out in their lives as they waited for the coming of their rescuing king. 
But this morning to begin our journey, as we get ready to go to 40,000 feet, we're going to take off with the great modern philosopher, Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss wrote, when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. Truer words have never been written. Our culture is a culture of hot takes, and um, our hot takes all contrast one another. There's no solidarity in our hot takes. It's just one hot take after another, and they, they, all, they, they tend to disagree with one another, and it's no different when it comes to hope. I'm not going to give you any of the names of these quotes, but let me just read through some of these statements about hope, and, and I just encourage you, look and listen for the contrasts. Here's the first, one, first pairing. Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. Next hot take. Hope is for people who can't see the truth. The next pairing, hope springs eternal in the human breast, followed by hope is a curious thing. You always seem to lose it when you need it most. Another statement, another pairing, there was never a night or a problem that could defeat sunrise or hope. And then Tolkien again, you know, the whole thing is quite hopeless So it's no good worrying about tomorrow. It probably won't come anyway. And another pairing. Hope is the thing, very poetic. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Followed by, hope is the only universal liar who never loses his reputation for veracity. Hot takes, we're in a culture of hot takes, and even when it comes to hope, our hot takes contrast each other more than they complement each other. Soren Kierkegaard said this, he said, hope is passion for what is possible. I like that, hope is passion for what is possible. But here's the question, what happens when your passion fades? What happens when your passion is eclipsed by darkness? when what is possible in your life turns to what is impossible. That happened not too long ago for a pastor by the name of John Bloom, and he wrote uh, kind of a, a journal entry that he blogged later just to share his own experience, and he titled it, My Dark Night of the Soul. And here's what he said. He's how he started out. He said, one day, an eclipse of God occurred in the sky of my soul. I suddenly couldn't see God at all. I suddenly saw the world as if God didn't exist. The hopelessness that all the existential philosophers described raged through me. I cannot capture in words the depths of the despair that I experienced. For months, I had a constant low-grade headache from the dissonance of conflicting beliefs in my head. I remember the terror of realizing that if I embraced this unbelief, even the wonder of my wonderful wife and child would disappear. The bleak darkness was horrible in its truest sense. I did not wish to commit suicide, but I knew I could not endure this darkness indefinitely. 
And whatever secret envy I had ever harbored for unbelievers who seemed free to pursue whatever sinful pleasures they wished was gone. The bankruptcy of that deceitful fantasy was fully exposed. I determined that God, not my doubts, deserved the benefit of the doubt. My pastor encouraged me. He said, the rock under your feet will long feel like sand. I loved him for saying it, but it felt so unlikely that the sand would would feel once again like a rock, especially when the eclipse lingered week after week after weary week. I had experienced an eclipse of God, but eventually... God did cause the light to dawn in my darkness. And a year later, my daughter was born. During the latter months of pregnancy, we had pondered many names. But about three weeks before her birth, we came across the name Eliana, which means in Hebrew, my God answers. I had never heard the name before, but as soon as I saw it, I knew that God wanted us to give her that name to remember his deliverance. And when Eliana was six, I wrote her a song that included these lines. You, Eliana, remind me each day that God does not answer the prayers that we, that God does answer the prayers that we pray. And when the night falls and we cannot see, he will bring light when the time is right for you and me. So here's a question I want to ask you this morning. Have you ever experienced an eclipse of God in the sky of your soul like John Bloom just described in his own? Have you ever experienced that for a day or a week or a season or a year? Let me ask you this. Are you currently experiencing an eclipse of God in the sky of your soul? I know some of you are. If that is you, I want you to know this morning from the gospel that that you are not alone. And we know what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, just talking about temptation in general, temptation to anything to include temptation to despair. And he he said, friends, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape that you may endure. So two truths in that, that verse right off the top. It is common for us as people to fall into seasons of hopelessness and despair. That's what the gospel says about us. That is our tendency. It's not whether or not we will fall into a season like that. It's, it's when will we, will we experience a season like this in our souls. That's the first, the first idea that we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And the second is this. God will cause the sun to rise It doesn't feel like he will. It doesn't even feel like the sun exists in your life anymore in this kind of a season. But God is faithful and he will provide a way of escape that you may endure. He will cause the sun to rise. So when we read that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, let me just back that up with a few brief examples, not only from scripture, but Uh, from life since scripture was recorded. We know what the Bible says about Job, right? Job chapter 17, Job just came out and said, man, my spirit is broken, not hurting, not wounded, not just, I'm not struggling, I'm broken. My spirit is broken. Look at what he says, my days are extinct. 
The graveyard is ready for me. I want to die. Where is my hope? Was Job's very real question. And his implication in that question is it's gone. That's what he says next. He says, who who, who will see my hope? Like, I can't find it and I can't see it. I dare you to find my hope for me. You You won't find it. And Job wasn't alone. In the Psalms, the psalmist writes in Psalm 42.5, he just asks himself, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil with me? Man, you know, if you've read the Psalms, it wasn't a one-time occurrence. It wasn't just one season. It was, it was seasons of hopelessness that would come and go. And then Jeremiah in Lamentations, a uh, passage that was read before we began by Jacob in Lamentations 3.17 He writes, my soul is bereft of peace, meaning bankrupt, gone, no peace. It's gone. I have forgotten what happiness is, he says. That's a sobering statement. I have forgotten what happiness is, and so I say, my endurance has perished. My ability to persevere through this difficult season is dead. It's gone. I can't fake it until I make it anymore. It's not just that my endurance is gone. Look at what he says. My hope from the Lord is gone. So is my hope from the Lord. Jesus himself was, we know from Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows. He was well acquainted with grief. That word acquainted means that grief was a good friend of Jesus. They spoke regularly. They knew each other well is what that means. Jesus was acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Isaiah would write. A few examples from scripture. One of the better known pastors from a a century ago, well before podcasts and the internet, but if they were around, um, this guy would have been listened to in every home and every earbud. Charles Spurgeon actually lived a lot, his, his life persisted with depression. He was depressed all the time. He wrote this, he said, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child and yet I knew not what I wept for. Wow. Spurgeon battled against what, what, what he would call causeless depression. Could never put his finger on it, but he was depressed and he battled against it his entire life. He would, he would write in his journal, this shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness cannot be reasoned with. He despaired. Fighting this type of depression, he said, is as difficult as fighting with mist. But Spurgeon did fight it. We know from his journals and from his preaching that he did. He, he, he battled through his entire life to fight with faith, to learn how to fight with faith in Jesus. He wrote, here's what he wrote. He said, the iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in gloomy prison. Listen, he says it needs a heavenly hand to push it back. Charles Spurgeon just admitted his complete inability to change his own heart. He, you know, we tell our kids all the time, change your attitude, fix your attitude, stop it, just stop being like that. 
Charles Spurgeon was a grown-up kid who said he realized that that wasn't the answer. In life, that's not the answer. I, I, he couldn't just stop it. He couldn't change his own heart. He needed a heavenly hand to push it back. This is what we need, family. And David came to learn this. I, I read to you some of David's despairing words a few moments ago. Here's what David writes in Psalm 62, verse 5. This is what he learned. He said, for God alone... Oh, my soul, wait in silence. Now, who's he talking to here? Who's David talking to? Who's he talking to? Himself. He's not really talking to us. We have the benefit, because God gave it to us in his word, of being able to look and listen in and peek in. But David is, he's actually telling his heart to do something. Like, he's commanding himself. He's speaking to himself. For God alone, oh, my soul, wait and wait in silence, wait longer, and wait longer in the silence. Don't turn something on to distract yourself, David. Let the silence remain. Let the silence reflect the barrenness of your soul. The silence is good for us in a lot of different ways. One of the ways the silence is good is it can reflect the emptiness in the atmosphere around us can reflect the emptiness in our soul that has to be filled with something. And we don't want to fill it with a distraction prematurely. We need to wait. And that's what David says. Wait in silence for my hope is from him. On God rests my salvation. Notice what he says. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. On God alone, my soul, rest and wait in silence. Now, how is hope expressed in our culture? When we use the word hope in a sentence or to, to express an idea, what, what, are we, what are we communicating with that word hope? I think when we use the word hope culturally, we're, we're expressing desire. Yes, I, I, I desire something to take place or to change in the future. But that expression is desire mixed with uncertainty, right? Like, I desire for this thing to happen. I don't know if it will, but here's my desire. So it's hope is uh, expressed desire coupled with uncertainty and a lack of assurance, right? I mean, we could, we could, we could use that formula for any, anything. Your next promotion, your next duty station, uh, a change in relationship, um, a relationship, right? The outcome of a sporting event for your favorite team. It's desire expressed with uncertainty, lacking assurance, right? Because we can't do anything to control the outcome and, and the outcome is uncertain. The Bible would actually take our inability to be truly hopeful one step further if God is not at the center of our lives. Here's what Paul would write in Ephesians 2.12. Just a very, very honest assessment of our inability to be hopeful apart from God. Basically, in Ephesians 2.12, what, what Paul says is to be without God is to be without true hope. Look at what he says. Remember, remember before Jesus is what he's, he's talking to them about. Remember that before Jesus, you were separated from Christ, separated. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That would be another way of saying God's family. You were separated from Jesus. You were alienated from God's family. So you were outside the home looking in, not even knowing that the home was there to look into. You're, you're like, 
You're very separated. So separated that you're a stranger to the covenant of promise. In other words, you don't even know that there's a promise from God that exists that should give you hope. And so here's Paul's assessment of life lived in this broken world apart from Jesus, having no hope, no true hope. To be without God in this world is to be without true hope. Now, biblically, we could say that hope is that same desire expressed, same desire, but the subjective uncertainty is replaced with a confident expectation. So we remove the uncertainty from the equation and we insert in its place a confident expectation. Or as somebody once said, hope is a total grounding of my confidence and expectation in God's goodness and providential care, even in the face of trouble. So we see what Paul said, to have God is to have hope. To be apart from God is to be apart from hope. And Peter would talk about it this way. Peter would say, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And later in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, and kind of the opening to this letter, Paul's just very honest. I like, what he, I like how he describes it here. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior. And, and look at what he says. What does he say? Of Christ Jesus our hope. Now, Paul loved this idea. Paul, Paul was not about saying, hey, if you can have Jesus, hope is the secondary thing that you can get. It's not that we get hope from Jesus. It's that we are hopeful because of Jesus, that Jesus himself is our hope. Again, not a secondary gift that Jesus gives, not a byproduct that he gives. Jesus is our hope. So guys, that would mean not our circumstances, not ourselves, and not other people. If my ultimate hope is wrapped up in a circumstance, it's misplaced hope. If my ultimate hope is wrapped up in myself, that too is a misplaced hope. If my hope, my ultimate hope is wrapped up in other people and who they are or what they can do for me or if they will change, that too is a misplaced hope. It will not be fulfilled. Jesus alone is our hope. Christ, not circumstances. And so that's why Paul could say something like this in 1 Thessalonians 4 about mourning, about sadness. He says, we mourn not as those who do not have hope. We mourn not as those who do not have hope. When Paul says that, he's saying, look, life is hard, and being a Christian does not remove us from the difficulty of life. Jesus does not give us a sanitized version of life because we're his kids. We experience all the highs and all the lows just like everybody else. You cannot separate out gladness from sadness. In life, they will always be mingled together, sometimes more gladness and sometimes less sadness, but there's not a recipe in life that eliminates one or the other. So Paul can say, because of Jesus, yeah, we still mourn. We still have seasons of profound sadness, but not as those who do not have hope. We have hope. We have a forward-leaning hope because our hope, listen, our hope is not rooted in the ability to go back and change something. 
and our hope is not rooted in the, in the potential that circumstances or people change. Our hope is not anchored in any of these places. Our hope is anchored in Christ. And so our hope as followers of Jesus is anchored in the certainty of a good king, not the uncertainty of our difficult circumstances. And that's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 23 would write this. And you know what Hebrews is about, right? If we could summarize it in a sentence, we could summarize it this way. Jesus is better than fill in the blank. Jesus is better than, than my hardships. Jesus is better than my best days. Jesus is better than what any other pastor or priest has ever done for me. Jesus is better than any religious expression. Jesus is better than fill in the blank. And so the writer of Hebrews would say, Jesus is better, so let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. Two things here. He's com- this is a command. We're being commanded to hold tightly to hope, tighter than you hold to anything else. So there are some things in life we hold dearly. Your family, um, I don't know. There are things we hold tightly that we shouldn't hold tightly. Our finances, our career. There are things that we should hold tightly, right? The people that we love dearly, we hold tightly. He is telling us that the confession of our hope should be the, the one thing that we, we cling to more than anything else. And we do because, look, he who promised is faithful. Our hope is not in the goodness of our circumstances. Our hope is in the faithfulness of our king, in the brokenness of our circumstances. The one who promised is faithful. He, the one who promised is faithful and he knows that we live in the brokenness and he does not promise us a sanitized existence apart from the brokenness of this life, but he is faithful to us in the brokenness. But can we just have a, a, a moment of family confession right now? Let's just be honest. We tend not to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Like, can I change the pronoun if it makes, that hap- it makes you happier? I... Tend is a weak word. I really don't very often hold fast to the confession of my hope the way that the author of Hebrews is writing about. In fact, every generation of rescued rebels wrestles with this. We see this through the storyline of Scripture from start to finish. We, that's our problem. We don't hold fast to the confession of our hope. So we, we turn our backs on Christ and we misplace our hope in a created thing, usually ourselves or another person or our circumstances. But Jeremiah would ask this question, right? Like every generation. So here's a question that Jeremiah would ask in his his generation. He he asked this. He said, guys, listen, are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? So what are they hoping for? Rain. They've turned their back on their creator. So when we do that, any, any person, place, or thing that we place in Jesus' position for our hope is a false god, okay? So that's what Jeremiah is asking. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers on their own? The answer to Jeremiah's questions obviously are are no. Are you not he? So then he, he shifts from asking the question of people and now he talks essentially to God himself. Are you not he, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you for you do all these things. Jesus is the only appropriate resting place for our hope. Every other resting place will disappoint. Every other resting place is actually, to use Jeremiah's word, 
a false god in our lives, an idol that has taken the place of Christ. Jeremiah would, you know, he asks these questions, but he's a good pastor, he's a good prophet, so he takes it a step further and he says the hard thing to this generation. This is in Jeremiah chapter 17, and he would warn God's people about misplacing their hope. He says this, 17.5, thus says the Lord, you're cursed if you do this. Not that God is cursing you, but that you in taking this action are, are cursed. In taking it, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Now, when you trust in man, that could be yourself or somebody else. Cursed is the man or woman who trusts in him or herself or somebody else and makes flesh themselves or another person their source of strength. And then Jeremiah equates this with, if we trust in man instead of Jesus, if we trust in ourselves more than we trust in Christ, that is the same as having a heart that is turned away from Jesus. Guys, it's not just that we have misplaced hopes. It's that we have turned our hearts away from Jesus, and the natural outcome of turning away from Christ is to place our hope in something or someone other than him. And look at the outcome of this life. There are no exceptions to this, none. You will be like a shrub in the desert. You will live in 29 palms and you will never PCS. You shall never see any good come. You will dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. I've never lived in a salt land, like a real salt land, have any of you? Like stuff does not grow in a salt land. The salt prevents the life from taking root and, and, and flourishing. Guys, this is a faithful pastor just humbly telling people the truth that if your heart turns away from Jesus and you chase after anyone or any other thing for your hope, this will be the narrative of your life unless you repent and turn back to Jesus. There are similar statements to this in the Psalms. The psalmist, I like this one in Psalm 33, 17. This is appropriate for us this year. He says, the war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. I wish we did, but we don't have war horses anymore. That'd be cool. But for them in that generation, a war horse was a cultural symbol of strength, right? Of winning. That's what the war horse was. I don't know, what are some cultural symbols that we have for strength and winning? Not war horses. Again, the economy, like our service, I don't know, whatever that is for you. But take the word war horse, words war horse out of the sentence. Just leave it blank and fill in your own, your own thing. And whatever or whomever it is, other than Jesus, the psalmist would say, that's your false hope. Because by its great might, it cannot save you. It cannot rescue you. But our problem is we want to believe that it can because we can see it and we can touch it and we can smell it and we really do believe it will work. But back to Jeremiah in seven, chapter 17, verse 7 now, he says he's contrasting the one who is trusting in a false hope. And he says, now blessed is the person who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Trust would be synonymous with hope here, right? We, we can use those words interchangeably here. 
He, verse 8, is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now, what I want to show you is this. In Jeremiah's warning, notice there are some differences between these two people, but there's one thing that's the same. And the sameness is this. The one who was not trusting Jesus was living in a desert. Look at what he says about the one who does trust in the Lord. Verse 8, he does not fear when heat comes, and he is not anxious in the year of drought. Trust Jesus, yes, but know that in trusting Jesus, you will still have seasons in your life where unbearable heat comes into your existence and you will still have seasons in your life that you will be able to look back and characterize as drought. Drought in your soul, drought in your relationships, drought. Trusting Jesus does not eliminate unbearable heat and seasons of drought from your life. But in that unbearable heat and in that season of drought, if your trust, if your hope is in Jesus, you will still be like a tree that is planted by water. There will still be life. Your leaves will still remain green and you will not be anxious in the year of drought. Life will still be hard, but Jesus will show himself to be faithful and good to you in the difficult season. So as we consider all of this evidence from scripture, it becomes obvious that we as rescued rebels need help for our hopeless hearts, right? We need help. Maybe your heart's not hopeless, but in your heart, your hope is misplaced. So I want to give you from the gospel this morning four hope-restoring actions for Advent. We'll just call them four hope-restoring actions for Advent. And here they are. Cry for help. Question your heart. Command your heart. And call to mind. Okay? Cry for help, question your heart, command your heart, and call to mind. In Psalm 119, verse 147, David, knowing how helpless he was and how much he tended to be a hopeless person, here's what he wrote. He said, I rise before dawn. So some of us are going to have to change our patterns here. I rise before dawn. And what do I do? Guys, this is what the word devotions mean. We've over-spiritualized it. We've made it sound something like that super Christians do. And you've got like this peer-to-peer relationship with Jesus. And you check all these boxes. The most mature Christian is the one that understands this is the only thing that we do. We cry for help. We cry for help. We just, ride, we just get out of bed. We say, here it's. Here we go again. I need help, Dad. I cry for help. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. I don't hope that today is going to be better. I don't hope that today is going to be different. I don't hope that the people around me will be different or better. I rise before dawn and I cry for help and I, I work to place my hope again in your words. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Guys, Advent is not for the already happy. Advent is for the almost hopeless. Advent is for the absolutely hopeless. Advent is for those like me who have 
who struggle perpetually through life in misplacing our hope. We cry to God, and listen, it doesn't stop with crying to God. We cry to his family. We cry out, and we cry out to those who help. I can't, we can't spend a lot of time here, but I just want to say this. It's not that a Christian uh, cries out to God or other sources of help. That's not a helpful thing to say, right? Um, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, cries out to God first and, and through God's common grace, cries out to other places and other people who can be of help as well. So we begin with God. God is our hope and we cry out. But then our circle expands and we cry out to people in his family. We have to do that. We're not, isolation will kill our souls. So we cry out. And then God has scattered his grace all through this world. And so we cry out to medical professionals and to counselors. There may be other sources who can give help to your weary soul. It's not either or. It begins with God and God is ultimate. And then we take, it, we take his grace and we go uh, to places that we, where we can find our help. Sometimes we have grown up in circles of Christianity that would put God against medicine or God against counseling. And guys, that's dangerous and not helpful and not biblical. Get help. Go to God, cry out to him, and keep crying out and find that help. All right, we got to keep pressing. So we cry for help. Psalm 42, verses 5 to 8. We're going to see the remaining three. Question, command, and call to mind. Notice Psalm 42, verses 5 to 8. David asks, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil with me? So he's questioning his own heart. He, there's a point in time in which we have just got to stop questioning God's faithfulness and start questioning my faithlessness. That's what David is doing. Why are you cast down again, my soul? Like, you know God is good. He's been good. He's been good yesterday. Why am I cast down again this morning? Why is my soul in turmoil within me? So we cry out for help, and then we question. We start questioning, but we stop questioning our dad, and we start questioning our own faithless hearts. So we cry out for help, we question, and then we command in heart. Notice, we command our hearts. Notice where David goes next. He says, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So again, he's talking to himself, probably out loud, which is something we should do more. And he commands himself, you need to, you need to place your hope in God. Because yesterday I praised him, today I'm struggling, but I will again. He will restore my heart and I will praise him, my salvation and my God. So we question, we command, and then we call to mind. Look at what he says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you, right? I call to mind, I remember. What do I remember? By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. Guys, every day, if you are, if, if, if you are a child of the king, if, if the father has rescued you into his family, every day, he goes to work, and he commands his steadfast love towards you individually. That's what he does for you. And I don't know, did you have a parent that sung you to sleep at night or tucked you in and sang a song at nighttime? Did any of you? Some of you maybe. God is the father who at night his song is with me. He sings hope and peace over his kids in the darkest seasons of their life. Lamentations 3 is the same pattern. Uh, Jacob read that for us to begin. Let's just reread it so it's in our souls. Verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished. 
so has my hope from the Lord. That statement is not a statement of giving up. That is a statement of crying out for help. That's admission. Dad, my hope is gone again. And I'm just going to be honest with you. My hope in you is dead right now. I need help. That's what crying out for help sounds like. It's just an honest, raw admission. No faking it in our father's family. Here's remembering, calling to mind. Verse 20, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Well, what do I call to mind here? Where is my strength? My circumstances? No, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And his mercies never come to an end. That's where our hope is anchored. They are new every morning, every difficult morning, every dark morning. Great is your faithfulness in the middle of my unfaithfulness. Guys, you got to doubt your doubts. Stop doubting your dad. Doubt your doubts. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So there's commanding my heart right there. He's commanding himself. He's speaking out loud. God is my portion, says my soul. That's what I have taped to my mirror in the morning. That's what I have on the home screen of my phone. That's what I see. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Guys, that last verse, we can't escape that. We can't run away from that too quickly. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In what kind of season do we wait quietly for the salvation that comes from the Lord? Good seasons or hard seasons? Not usually in the good seasons, right? It takes seasons we wouldn't choose for ourselves to get us back on our knees and in a position where this is what we are doing. So maybe like John Bloom, we could say, the dark night of the soul is the gift that you wouldn't choose for yourself. That is the very gift that God uses to reorient your hope back on Jesus and off of your false God. All right, so in closing, family, what have we learned about who God is and what he's done for us? Who is God? He is our hope. Jesus is our hope. And what has God done which reveals who God is? He sent Jesus, a man of sorrows, to be acquainted with our grief. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He took our judgment in our place he, he died the death we deserve to die, and he lives again so that by faith we can be born again to a living hope. And who am I in light of God's work? I'm his son. I'm his, his daughter. My birth into the family, again, is a birth that gives me living hope in Jesus. Well, how should we live in light of this truth? Simply, we need to repent of our misplaced hope and reorient our hope in Jesus, rising before the dawn, crying for help, questioning my own heart, not questioning my dad, commanding my heart to trust in him, to hope in him, and to call, to call to mind the ways that he's been faithful, to, do a, to, to journal the ways that he's been faithful towards me uh, throughout all of my life. Guys, in closing, Advent is about hope. And in our generation, the focus of Advent is usually exclusively on Jesus' birth, right? That's what we associate Advent with. But historically, Christians spent the first two weeks of Advent on Jesus' second coming, so it was a forward-looking hope. 
And then the last two weeks of Advent would be spent uh, remembering the first coming of Jesus. I like that because it reminds us of our place in between the two. And it reminds us that our hope is anchored in the first coming of Jesus, but it's also a forward-leaning hope to the second coming of Jesus when, when he returns, all of the sad things will finally come untrue. Any other hope that we have prior to his return of all of the sad things in my life coming untrue will only rock my faith because it won't happen. Jesus alone is the one who will finally bring that restoration to our souls. And guys, this morning, when we're, before we leave, we will celebrate baptism. And baptism gives us the same gift. Baptism looks back to the, to the finished work of Jesus, and baptism looks forward to the unfolding promises of Jesus, which will be fulfilled when he returns. So this morning, uh, during this hour, we'll watch Amber be baptized, and in the next hour, we'll see Bryn and Timia be baptized as well. And as they are baptized, remember, baptism is about hope. Baptism is a public declaration that I am turning from my misplaced hopes, and I'm declaring that my hope now belongs in Jesus and Jesus alone. David's going to come now as one of our pastors, and he's going to help us do this as a family. It won't be perfect, it'll be messy, but let's practice this morning being honest in crying for help, questioning our heart, commanding our hearts, and then calling to mind of our Father's faithfulness to us in the days that we have already lived. So David, if you'd come and lead us in that, please.